the funny thing about wild animals is that we're really not so bad once we become adults. This is my conversation with Gina Schneider. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repton. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Dr. Gina Simmons Schneider. She is the author of Frazzle Brain, Break Free from Anxiety, Anger, and Stress Using Advanced Discoveries in Neuropsychology. And that may sound like a mouthful, but we're going to dive into some of these advanced uh, discoveries in neuropsychology and how they can affect our physiology and how they can affect our, our physical experiences and what our bodies are going through and what we're experiencing in our lives. Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hirsch. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So let's start with, with some discoveries and what's in the book. Give us a little a little bit of an understanding of this new of this new book and what some of these new discoveries are. Well, I'll tell you how, kind of how I got into this because I've been a therapist and a executive coach for 30 more years or more years right now and people keep coming up to me and talking about feeling frazzled. That is sort of the go-to word descriptor for the time we're living in. People are feeling frazzled, overworked, stressed out, anxious and so I, I started digging more deeply. I've been reading and, and researching neuroscience and neuropsychology, looking for remedies for people for quite some time and taking a lot of continuing education courses and completed a certification course because I'm looking for tools to really help people cope, coping with the pandemic and all the other stresses people may be dealing with. So when I got into some of this research, I got extremely excited and I thought I have to write about some of this stuff because I recommend a lot of self-help books to my clients who are going through things. And sometimes they'll start reading and they'll say, I can't finish this book. It's too, it makes me stressed out just to read this book. They need, they need help <laughs> and, with the self-help book. Exactly. I, and I, I, I can't read this self-help book right now. It's like, it's like a long checklist of like symptoms. Like, you know, you yeah. start feeling the symptoms when you're reading about them. So oh, I thought, uh, yeah, that's me. That's I, I know. I, that's what I'm. Yeah. They call it medical student's disease where you're like reading your medical student, you're reading about rashes and all of a sudden you start itching, you know, and your body is just feeling terrible because you're reading about all these terrible things that can happen. But so I realized there was a need for a book that felt good to read and could provide some coping skills and some soothing remedies while you're going through dealing with some of the hard stuff that we have to deal with. So it doesn't the book doesn't pull back from talking about trauma or anything difficult, but it provides these nice little rest places where you can try a really quick little remedy and get some benefit from it. So that was the uh, impetus for the book. And it's divided into kind of three parts, really based on in neuropsychology, what actually helps us change, what actually helps us cope better. And the three parts are really looking at focused thoughts, like focusing your thoughts on purpose in a certain direction 
that's going to likely lead to some, you know, better feelings and uh, improved coping. And then intentional behaviors, which are specific actions we can do that we know have a positive effect. And then healing experiences. The reason why we need to have experiences that are healing is that certain types of trauma, the way the brain processes traumas, we we'd never forget it. So we have this sort of experience that our brain will always react to as a self-defense strategy, right? So if we were yeah. attacked in a had a knife fight in a, in a bar, we're going to have like an emotional reaction to a bar that looks similar or somebody that looks similar to our attacker or something like that. So so our our brain just kind of reacts and um and then we find ourselves overreacting maybe to situations that are not threatening. That leads me to wonder if, you know, sometimes we we wonder why we ourselves don't absorb intellectual things that we understand intellectually. So in other words, we read something, it's enlightening, it tells us all about ourselves, we now recognize ourselves in what we've read and we go, oh, I get it now, I have to change X. If I change X, I can improve myself as a person and I can get better results. And yet it doesn't happen. It is easier read than, than done. But is there some relationship there that we've read it, but we haven't had an experience that actually impacts it? Exactly. That's a really good point. And I think that's really common for all of us. We can have an intellectual idea that, yeah, it'd be good to exercise. That would be good for me and lower my anxiety and stress. And we can't seem to make ourselves do it. Partly also because, you know, it requires maybe some habit change and some behavioral change. And we have this sort of built-in resistance to change because habit has its own inertia. But I think when it comes to trauma, too, if we are trying to cope with something that causes some emotional distress, maybe we were attacked at a gym. I know people who were attacked at a gym. And every time they think about exercise they have a negative emotional reaction to it. So sometimes you have to change the context and change the experience of what exercise is. Maybe exercise is just dancing to rock and roll in your living room, you know. So I do think sometimes we need help in terms of how do we get to that experience that's healing in such a way that we then have a new experience that actually mends the amygdala and the hippocampus because the amygdala and the hippocampus are kind of related to our fear response, our reflexes when we're triggered, and our memory, our our emotional memory. So those, if we've been traumatized quite a lot in our lives, those tend to, um, the amygdala can get enlarged and the hippocampus can shrink. And uh, so real healing has to take place through uh, new experiences. There's this Dr. Julie Smith, who's kind of an Instagram, Instagram superstar star psychologist from the UK, and she did this beautiful little video about trauma, and I thought it was a good example of pictorially showing what happens when we're healing from trauma. And she, she said a lot of times when we have a bad experience, it's like this big black hole inside of us, and that's all we can feel is this blackness, this heaviness. And so she draws this black you know, circle. And then she says, then we have a new experience and she takes like a yellow paintbrush and goes around it with bright yellow and then another experience and around it with bright purple and red and so on. 
to the point that by the end you have this gorgeous like rainbow multicolored rainbow with this black thing in the middle and that's how the brain heals is we have we have a love experience that helps us where we feel secure with someone that helps us heal from a past betrayal where another person maybe betrayed our trust and so we do need to seek out and we can intentionally seek out healing experiences that help our body and brain recover and cope better and and one of those experiences really simple that would be time in nature hiking uh, we know that if you know two hours of being in a forest can give you 30 days of antidepressant effects because of the the you know wood chemicals and the microbacteria vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> well, aren't we all lost, Hirsch? That can give you six months of of terror. Yes, exactly. Night terrors. Yeah. Right. Or trapped, you know, and yeah, trapped in a cave or something. Yeah. Or eaten by a bear. <laughs> well, at that point, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's true. <laughs> well, it might matter to our survivors. <laughs> but but see, that's an example of you know my mind just going to the darker, to the darker recesses, and it is something that I think is also circumstantial in many ways. Like we're just in a dark, you know, we're we're, we're in a dark mindset. Uh, maybe since I brought it up, maybe get into that a little bit of what's going on in our minds lately what's happening to our minds well we are living in a time where the world seems to be turning authoritarian which has never been historically good for the planet or people or humans or civilized society so that is causing this drumbeat of underlying anxiety for many many people i hear about it all the time our politics has gotten vicious and polarizing and extreme and the middle voices tend to be the most sober and intelligent voices and they're being trampled. So it's always a bad sign in any kind of human organization when extremists have the microphone and the, the moderate people or the people playing devil's advocate <laughs> Uh, the people looking at alternative views, the people paying attention to science and reason are are sort of silenced. So we are living in that time globally. And then in addition to that, there's this global pandemic that's killed millions of people and um, we're changed the way people live in a lot of ways. And so people are also politicizing that and using that to cause more strife and then when people are afraid when people are afraid and angry which seem to be the two you know anxiety and anger are seem to be the the Janus head god you know of mm. war and you know it's 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 like yeah. this two-headed monster that's going on but we do know when we look at the human brain psychologically when we are under the influence of anxiety and anger our visual field and our mind becomes very narrow. And they've even t studied people in the laboratory and you know provoked them to have a negative emotion and then saw right. where their eyes went on a screen and that the, the range of vision and the things that you're able to see on a screen become very narrow and limited. But when we're under the influence of a positive emotion, like feeling contentment, like, or feeling a little curious, or feeling 
comforted that our eyes actually follow a broader pathway and we literally see more in the world when we're able to generate positive emotions. Well, so, the narrow-mindedness isn't just a, uh, a it comes from something, the idea of being right. narrow-minded. Exactly, because when you think about it, if we're feeling threatened, then the only thing that matters is safe versus not safe, mm-hmm. right? So, and that is part of our human survival, but if people are using that to manipulate us, you know, keeping us stupid, so, so to speak, you know, I mean, every street crook knows that you put a gun to somebody's head, you can make them do whatever you want for at least a, a, a period of time. It doesn't take very much nuance, intelligent or knowledge to do that, right? To, to, yeah. to scare people and then manipulate them. So I think the pathway through is really using self-calming mechanisms and being able to go, okay, wait a minute, let me tamper down the anxiety, let me tamper down the fear, let me manage my internal nervous system reactivity first, and then things will become a little bit more clear, and there will often be more pathways to survival. And that also actually helps our survival if we can think in a broader way. So really, if we're arguing with people or we're finding conflict happening, it isn't so much about listen to me or hear me as it is calm down. Let's take a deep breath. Let's everybody calm down because the more calm they are, the more comfortable they are, the more their mind will expand just naturally. Is that right? Exactly. And and really, we don't take advice from someone we view as an adversary, sure. right? So if we feel like someone is hostile towards us, we've immediately shut down. Most of us are going to just reflexively shut down any kind of listening or acceptance. Mm-hmm. So some basic human trust has to occur before we can have any persuasive effect on someone and you'll see that even in hostage negotiations you know what's the first thing a hostage negotiator does they try to establish rapport with the the bandit you know what Mm -hmm. uh, do you need a coke you need some pizzas you know how you doing what what is it that you're really after here how can i help you you know we all want to get out of this alive so the the hostage negotiator is actually talking to the person like a human being and not, if they're effective, they're not shutting down the lines of communication by talking at somebody in a hostile manner. And I think yeah. that's what's happened to our politics. It's just talking at one another, making fun of one another, ridicule. Well, you know, all of that just shuts down any kind of, any kind of learning. We can't learn from someone we don't trust. Yeah. There must be a part of human nature that's so either competitive or convinced that we have to establish our correctness, the fact that we're right is worth more to us than solving the tension or dissolving the tension. I don't know that our emphasis is around dissolving the tension because that could be viewed as conceding. So if we if we're like, okay, calm down, you know, and we do what a hostage negotiator does, which is you're in control, it's okay, calm down, we want to know what you want, 
we should try that perhaps more in, uh, you know, in our political discourse. Let's talk a little bit about human human interaction outside of what we're going through or, or what the what the stakes are, you know, for the planet and all of the bigger issues. But let's kind of zoom in on interpersonal relations a little bit. I would say a majority of my listeners are either parents or children of parents. So, <laughs> so, so how do, how do win an argument or manage an argument with, with children? What insights and advice can you give? You know, that's such a great subject. And as a, as a child of a parent myself and a parent of three grown children, I totally sympathize, empathize with what it means to, to love a child and also find them simultaneously infuriating and <laughs> it can be frightening. I remember the panic when my boys were, you know, 14, 15 and 16 thinking I have two more years to teach them everything they're ever going to need to know for the rest of their life because they're going away to college and I'm not yeah. going to have any influence. I remember feeling this sort of panic like I haven't done enough I haven't taught them enough they're not prepared they're not ready so I, I think the thing about parenting is that children we have this ego investment right and in, and in, in, and we also have this love investment in them so if they're not doing well we both feel hurt we feel responsible and we feel anxious and worried so I do think it helps to, and there's this great book I'm reading. I hate to plug other books, but I do think it's a great book. It's called The Art of Talking with Children by Rebecca Rowland. It's a brand new hot off the press book, and it's so good because it's really about getting a window into our children as unique and separate people from us and how we can do that organically and have more persuasive influence when we are listening and having real communication and di back and forth dialogue where they're contributing to the conversation and we're listening and that we're contributing and that those moments of real I-thou connection where it's, it's two people engaging in an ex exploration of an idea or a subject or topic, it, that's where we we really feel this sense of emotional safety and human connection. And we get that from, you know, when someone isn't lecturing to us, right? And I think that's yeah. one of the biggest, toughest transitions for parents is going from, you know, my eight-year-old just wants to please me and they'll, they just want to do, you know, <laughs> do what I say and I just tell them what to do. And sometimes I have to tell them 20 times, but they want to please me to the adolescent who's 14 and thinks everything we say is stupid. You know, I remember my, my daughter, while we were driving somewhere, looks at me and says, what are you doing with your mouth? And I was like, <laughs> I'm just driving. I don't know if I'm doing anything with my mouth. I wasn't talking. So, you know, she just, everything about me just irritated her because of her nervous system. Her nervous system was yeah. so wound up with inferiority and insecurity. So I think the best thing we can do is similar to any conflict management is listen more and to and and our children aren't going to talk to us if they don't feel that we have an emotional readiness to listen. 
So, mm-hmm. so sometimes if our anxiety is up and it's like, how was your first day at school? You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we're like, did it go okay? You know, <laughs> we're just like radiating all this anxiety that often shuts down a, a child's just going to say fine. Or, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times they just don't want to stress us out if we had a yeah. bad day. Right. So, or if they've had a bad day. So what ha- helps a lot, I think is, being able to have these sort of calm interactions and backing off a bit from feeling that pressure that your child has to know everything and has to do everything right. And the way to do that, I think, is developing a growth mindset, like Dr. Carol Dweck talks about, a growth mindset, which is, you know, I remember having, treating a a mother who had a two-year-old who was kicking and biting and headbutting and she was like i just afraid that this child is just like a demon child is going to become a serial killer or something this is just like really terrifying to me you know so she had gone from you know toddlers do this actually developmentally toddlers bite because they bite they kick they hit the wild animal in every human is the wild animal in every human gets gratification from biting and kicking and scratching and yelling. And so, he, you know, children are by nature wild animals, and it's our job to sort of train them. So if we have a growth mindset, we can go, okay, I just have to work on this behavior of biting or kicking and teach a different behavior. I know my child is not an evil seed that is going to now become a mass murderer, you know, someday. Um, But that's sometimes where the parent brain goes to like, worst case scenario, you know, my child's going to be living on the streets. So those anxieties that happen in families interfere with real communication and understanding. So I think bringing that, again, bringing our nervous system arousal and spending more time trying to understand our child as a separate person from us can give us some tools that we can use to help them and persuade them. Now, with with younger kids, we, you know, get our heads around the idea that okay, well, they're they're young, they're not mature, they don't haven't learned this lesson yet. But what what happens as they move into and through adolescence is that th- they almost lose some of the stuff that they've learned, or some of the things that they ha- have come to know, and it seems as though in some cases their mind isn't operating exactly the, you know, the to full capacity in terms of their, their judgment and other things. Not, not that they're, I mean, in some cases you feel like, okay, they're different. They're completely different or they're going through something completely different, but what happens to the, to the, the minds and specifically of boys versus girls, you know, what happens at, at 14, 15, 16, well, th- that is a, there's a lot of tasks that have to happen psychologically and physiologically through puberty and early, middle, and late adolescence. So the brain is sort of learning things and then pruning back. So there's a lot of, of growth and cutting back in the brain going on all the time. I look at early adolescence like, you know, 13 to 15 as the, sort of the age of humiliation where everything is excruciatingly embarrassing. But at the same time, what happens with teens is there is this drive to take risks and assert their individuality. So you'll often hear a teen going, you know, this is just who I am, you know, 
and they and they want to die on the hill that you know I'm the kind of person who wears black all the time because that's the only you know true color or whatever um, right you know and so they will take a stand on something or they will bond also that is the a those are the periods of time when your a peer group becomes the most important thing because that is it becomes your way of defining yourself and so mm-hmm. parents often can become very alarmed if children are getting involved with a peer group that isn't isn't doing quite well and for good reason because that will have more influence than the parents often so the the drive in adolescence is to take risks and so that's when children will naturally engage in risky behavior that's terrifying to children. You know, skateboarding down a, a steep hill that ends in a blind intersection. You know, they, they will just do wackadoodle things. And I think parents can build corrals for, for kids to do that. So maybe there's a skateboard park you can do that in. And there's, you know, people there that can help you if you're injured. So we can give give our kids these sort of corrals to safely take risks and do some outrageous things without, you know, killing themselves or doing something really disastrous. Uh, so we, we need to look at the natural risk-taking behavior as really healthy, independent striving. And it's not in and of itself harmful. We just need to put some boundaries around it so that they're safe, you know, so they can do that safely. And so, like you said, sometimes it's the, uh, I hate you. There was a book that was written that was like, I hate you. Can you take me and Cheryl to the mall? I think is the title <laughs> of the book. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, parents will have this experience with an adolescent who's like, you know, I want to sit on your lap and cuddle and, you know, leave me alone. Don't touch me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'll regress to this I'm a baby now and I just want to feel like a baby. And then they're, they're like, get away from me and you're gross. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that is part of the just sort of trying to figure out how to be more adult and what being an adult means to them and, and trying to develop their own unique identity. Yeah, when, they're, when, the, when the rules or guardrails that you put in place are exactly what they're testing, Sure. There isn't really a logic to it because the the outcome would be that, that there would be a consequence. Right. Do the, do the consequences matter at that stage since they're testing boundaries anyway? I think consequences matter in that if you think about a consequence as a teaching tool, not as a way to inflict suffering. I think right. some parents think... If your child is not expressing incredible suffering at the thought that their iPhone was taken away, then it's just not effective as a consequence, you know, that you have to see them suffer. And a lot of kids out of pride, I remember doing that to my mother, you know, I knew in my mind. Not showing the. the, I screwed up by not telling my mother where I was. She was panic stricken. And, you know, I was safely at a friend's house and I forgot to call her. It was really late. She was panicking. I knew I had screwed up, but I was not going to give her the the satisfaction uh-huh. of that, you know. So I think a lot of times kids will, out of pride to save face, they will say, okay, I don't care, you know. Yeah. You can take away my phone. I don't care, you know, and they'll stomp off. 
So the point is not that they need to suffer, but the point is that a consequence happened. They were talked to about why they are being punished, and they, um, and that that the punishment is coming from a place of love and wanting to protect them from harm, and um, and and I think even with punishment, we need to hear from the child. You know what's going on because a lot of times. Kids will do things in their peer group that they would never do on their own because it's part of wanting to be accepted. It's part of wanting to belong. It's part of having to prove yourself as as a a cool person or somebody that other people are going to like to be around. And so they'll do things. They'll disobey parents because of that. And so I think sometimes parents need to have a bigger backbone and just let the kids use us as an excuse in their peer group. You know, like my mom will kill me and my dad will kill me if I do that. So I really can't, or I just got busted, lost my phone. You know, I I can't, I can't really go out drinking with you at two o'clock in the morning, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times they don't want to do that, but they want to feel accepted. So that's where parents can really be helpful in giving them a bit of a backbone in their, with their peer group. And has the pandemic, I mean, I I think we know the answer to it, but maybe you can get, go into a little more depth of it. The, has the pandemic impeded the social and emotional progress that kids would have ordinarily achieved? Yes, and teachers and researchers and therapists are seeing a lot of depressed kids, kids who are behind academically kids who are feeling really lost socially because of the pandemic, there's going to be some generational things we're going to see for many years to come, I think, because of the pandemic. And, And that's been kind of a part of human history anyway, right? Germs and pandemics and wars, all these things influence gen- entire generations. So we're going to see that and we're seeing it now. I know a lot of teachers are in my family and they're talking about one of my nieces is a kindergarten teacher and children are coming to kindergarten not having any exposure to the alphabet or numbers or being able to recognize colors, you know, parents having to work and just dump their kids somewhere, you know, but not being able to even give them supervision or help them in school because of the economics of not being able to have a full-time parent at home educating a child, you know or multiple yeah. children. So though that that puts a lot of burden on our educators. They are extremely burnout, extremely yeah. burnout, because now even society is talking about having them armed and learning how to battle, you know, do a gun battle yeah. in a school. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. So we need to really support them. We need to support teachers. And also we need to have empathy for the fact that our children are are way more stressed out than we think they are. There was a study published in the psychology, the monitor on psychology that, that showed that parents underestimate how much stress their children are under by a huge factor. And I find that to be the case where parents think, well, they're, you know, they've got a bed, they get food, they've got love, you know, their life is easy. My life is hard, but no, their, their life is hard too. Their life is really hard, and the pandemic has made it harder, and they have their own worries. And if we can open our hearts and, and listen, we can support each other better. 
So I do think that compassion, compassionate parenting helps and not putting so much pressure on achievement and more pressure, more putting more emphasis on mental and emotional and physical health. My book is, has a lot of coping skills in it. We can learn coping skills to deal with how difficult life is and cope more effectively. So coping doesn't necessarily mean we have no pain, we have no depression, we have no anxiety. It means that we can function and take good care of ourselves through the anxiety, through the depression, and then it'll lift, you know. It, these emotions come through us. They don't have to define us. And so the way to do that, there, it's interesting what I've learned about the brain is that in, in recent neuroscience research is that the default mode for the human brain when we're under stress is fight, flight, or freeze, mm-hmm. right? So that is the primitive animal thing that's built into our brain is I'm, if somebody's attacked me, I'm going to fight back or I'm going to run or I'm going to just be frozen and paralyzed. If to cope with things better than fight, fight, flight, or freeze is, is to learn another skill. Like I can use my words. I can ask for time out. I can ask for a mental health day. I can give myself a massage to reduce my stress. Um, I can do all these different coping skills and that when we when we get those coping skills that are pretty pretty much prefrontal cortex kind of skills that we've learned, we don't have to collapse into depression or anxiety. We don't have to yeah. collapse into the default mode of our brain, which is the untrained brain that's just reacting like an animal to a negative stimulus. So learning and te- helping to, to practice and model those skills for our kids practicing our own daily stress management so our kids see us you know doing some stretching and doing some exercise and getting a massage once in a while or taking time out to to read a book and enjoy ourselves taking time out to play when our children see us doing that then that gives them permission to kind of try some of these self-soothing mechanisms and one one of the vicious cycles of of human relations is that when when someone we love is in pain or suffering, we become angry at the inability to to help them or solve it. So, and sometimes if we are already under stress, then and something comes up, we handle it less well than we might if we were having a great day, and we were already bolstered and fortified. So, is there something we can we can do to right the ship when our helplessness or the pain of other people we love is is the is the problem and we don't want to spin off out of anger right you brought up a wonderful point because that's one of the biggest triggers for anger at home in the workplace is when you really care like people who really care about their kids do feel a sense of helplessness our child is being tormented by a bully at school, and we just want to go and kick that kid's butt, you know. And we can't because we don't want to go to jail, and that would be really bad for our kid, you know. So, right. um, yeah. so we, you know, the 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 feeling of helplessness is a an uncomfortable human emotion that we all feel, 
And one of the best things we can do is recognize in ourselves, oh my gosh, I'm, I overreacted. I yelled at my kid because I'm feeling, I'm feeling helpless. Mm-hmm. Let me apologize, you know, say, hey, you know, you don't need me yelling at you right now. I just care so much about you. I'm going to go take care of myself here. And we'll talk about this and we'll come up with a plan together. And you're not alone with this. You know, we can, we can, we can work on this together. So you recognize your own, your own emotions. And that's one of the most important things for parents to do is recognize and soothe yourself first. Right. It's like that old cliche of put the oxygen mask on yourself. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. It, It really is effective because if we soothe ourselves first, there really usually isn't an urgency. I mean, unless there's an immediate safety issue that you literally have to grab your kid off the street, most things can wait for a few moments for us to kind of do some deep breathing and soothing and calming ourselves, maybe talking to our partner about a strategy, a parenting strategy, and also talking about our feelings about our child and and what we're worried about and what we're stressed out about so that we can see that broader view back to what we talked about in the beginning is negative emotions narrow our perspective right so if we're really trying to solve a problem we need to be able to soften those emotions and maybe even generate some other emotions like love which is part of parenting you know love is a broadening emotion generating the the emotion of um, curiosity, having a flexible curiosity, like what is going on with my child and, and backing off from making assumptions and, and going off into anxious worry about a, a future that may never happen. Yeah. One of the things I love so much about the art of talking with children book that I plugged earlier um, is, is she talks about that urge to sort of parent and she gives an example of going to a parent teacher conflict conference and the teacher said you know your daughter never admits to making a mistake and gets really defensive and that's affecting her in her relationships and it's affecting her at you know in, in her learning and so you know she needs to work on that and so the parent goes home you know stung by this criticism of her perfect child right we always want our children to to get glowing reports and sort of the parental reflexes to say, you know, you need to admit that you've made mistakes and, you know, that's hurting your relationships at school because everyone thinks you're a know-it-all and you act like, you know, you're stuck up. That's the parental reflex is just to immediately go to the solution is change that behavior and stop, you know, stop saying you don't make mistakes. And so what she did instead, which I thought was rather ingenious is, she and her husband strategized and they decided, okay, we're going to make talking about mistakes a part of our daily life. You know, well, what mistake did you make today? And, you know, Mm -hmm. and the husband said, well, you know what, I made a wrong turn because I was distracted and I didn't go, you know, and then, you know, she says, well, you know what? Yeah, I forgot to put this thing in the recipe and it didn't turn out very good. And, and, you know, darling, what did you, darling child, what did your, what mistake did you make today? And, at first, the little girl was like, I didn't make any, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and then, um, but, but, but over time, pretty soon it became part of the family culture to see mistakes as normal part of learning and growth. 
and there was no lecture that was required. You know, the parents didn't need to lecture and say, you're not going to grow unless you learn to accept mistakes are part of life. And, you know, all the things that we immediately want to go to reflexively are not necessarily the most effective because we need to then get a window into our child's experience. And clearly this child at that moment thought mistakes meant, you know, absolute failure and, and, um, being defective. And then she had to see in her parents, oh, this is normal. This is normal to talk about mistakes, you know, and it became then a new habit in their family and it, it started to change her relationships at school. So I think that we can all learn from something like modeling. And and then I often sometimes just um, changing, doing something a little bit surprising. We could probably talk for hours about, I know I could. I know I could, could lob questions at you. Uh, you know, for four hours, just, just about parenting alone. Let's give you the last word in this interview and go back to Frazzle Brain. Tell us where we can get Frazzle Brain, where we can get the book. And Frazzle Brain is available wherever books are sold. Uh, Amazon books, bookshop.org is if you want to support indie booksellers. Um, it's available, Audible, paperback and also kindle you know or uh, e-reader so you can get it in any platform wherever books are sold and i was just in oregon at the powell's bookstore um which i love this powell city of books it's this huge indie bookstore and it's there it's sitting there on the shelf so you can get it anywhere give us if you would just one example from the book a tool that we can use to prevent frazzle brain and to kind of come out of the haze a little bit as we confront all the stuff we are in our daily lives. I recommend something called the compelling fantasy. I call it a compelling fantasy because it has a lot of detail that you create that compels you to think of. So the compelling fantasy is something that makes you feel good to think about and it has a lot of detail that compels you to think about a lot of different things. And it has no hostile or vengeful motive. So a compelling fantasy, it might make you feel good to think of 101 ways to tell off your bully boss, but that's not really going to help you feel calmer. And so the goal of the compelling fantasy is to help you feel a mild contentment, a mild kind of joy and contentment, which we know benefits our bloodstream, our nervous system, and can reduce the negative effects of stress. So the compelling fantasy is... No vengeful motive, makes you feel good to think about, has a lot of details. I don't recommend sexual fantasies except for sexual pleasure. That's fine. But for the compelling fantasy, you don't want to get yourself all agitated. So, you know, a fantasy that's maybe like a hobby or a fantasy that is like, for example, the ideal vacation fantasy where you can go anywhere in the world under on any kind of with any kind of travel companion, including from history. You can, I like to travel in my mind with Robin Williams, the comedian, and I appreciate people like you, Hirsch, who who know comedy and can do comedy. I I think it's awesome, very healing. Um, So I I think you can imagine all the details of what you would pack, who you would meet along the way, the conversations you might have, the places you would see and so on and so forth. And so what you can do when you're feeling frazzled is just generate 
one or two reliable fantasies. It could be the rock star fantasy, it could be the playing at Carnegie Hall fantasy, it could be building your dream house. A lot of times if you have a hobby or a skill, you know, designing the ideal quilt, beautiful quilt, you could just redesign it and design it and all with all different kinds of fabrics. If I'm dealing with something anxious or worrisome, you know, I'm going on a journey somewhere, you know, I'm having a good time. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is when we have, when we see in movies, um, it's often a revenge fantasy or a violent fantasy or something like that. It's this, it's, it's not what you're describing, but it would be interesting to see in a film where someone's having a conflict, having a confrontation, and instead of always fantasizing about being violent and doing the violence they wish they could do, it would be funny if they went to this compelling fantasy, which is a, a happy place, basically, going to their happy place and kind of chilling out and then coming back to reality and actually addressing the problem better. Because I love that's, that idea. That's missing. I well, love maybe, that. Maybe that's maybe a brilliant a, idea. A video you, using that. I love yeah. that. Do you remember the Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Um, there was. Oh a, yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. It it's not quite what you're describing, but he was this man who had this rich inner life. Yeah. And I love your idea, though. I think that would make a great short film. That you know, okay. instead of. Instead of, so Hirsch, you got to do this. <laughs> you got to write the script. Okay, well, maybe maybe you can consult on it. You Please, I, on would, the, on the I would love to. I would love to consult with you. And um, and it would be really funny, too. I think it would be hilarious to have us also set up in the film to think that this person is going to fantasize about revenge. And instead, yeah. they're, va they're fantasizing about some really fun little tea party or something you know <laughs> well i'll work on it i'll get to work on it all um, right all right well thank you so much dr gina simmons schneider for being on the show i really appreciate it thank you so much hirsch it's just a delight talking with you and i love your show and thank you so much for having me be a guest thanks so much for tuning into truth tastes funny if you enjoyed the experience please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends 